Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from the Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palfreman. Each month, Dave and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And Dave, our subject today is something I think we can be genuinely excited about. And that's how neurologists are building on the success of deep brain stimulation to pioneer new applications for the procedure and also to uncover some of the deeper mysteries of Parkinson's disease and indeed the brain. I agree, John. I think it's simply a a fascinating topic. Brain surgery for Parkinson's actually goes back to the early part of the last century. And as we'll hear in our conversation with Dr. Andre Lozano, the development of deep brain surgery involved both research and a bit of serendipity. Dr. Lozano chairs the neurosurgery department at the University of Toronto, and we began our conversation by reviewing the intriguing history of brain surgery and Parkinson's. Well, neurosurgeons have been um, operating on Parkinson's disease and movement disorders for about 100 years now, and uh, the first procedures were directed at uh, tremor, at trying to relieve tremor, and they all involved making cuts in the pathways that control movement and in particular in the corticospinal pathway. And so what they actually did was they cut into the brain at various locations until the tremor would go away. This is a little bit of uh, some hit and miss, but eventually they came upon certain areas where they could make a lesion and produce a benefit to Parkinson's disease. Sometimes it came at the expense of producing paralysis in a limb, so you trade it off, you know, not having tremor, but on the other hand, you lost function in, in the limb. So that was not totally satisfactory until really until the basal ganglia were attacked and then people started making lesions in the caudate and the globus pallidus in areas like that and found that, in fact, you could get improvement in Parkinson's without causing paralysis. So that really was a revolutionary finding that you could help Parkinson's disease without causing paralysis. And so over the course of time, instead of open operations, then people became much more precise and stereotactic techniques uh, were introduced where you could do these operations through a small opening in the skull, just through a drill hole in the skull, and to place an electrode in the brain to make a lesion. But people uh, discovered that while you were putting electrodes in and putting electrical current through them, you could also get an alleviation of Parkinson's symptoms. And that's really how DBS came about, where neurosurgeons found that you could stimulate various areas of the brain and produce a benefit. And if you could produce a transient benefit in the operating room, then, of course, why not stimulate on a chronic basis, 24 hours a day, to see if you could get an ongoing benefit And this is really how DBS came about. It almost sounds like there was some serendipity involved that on their way to actually burning a spot in the brain, surgeons discovered that just the application of circuit uh, of, of electricity could make a difference, almost accidental. Was it that serendipitous? There was some serendipity, but there was also some animal work that was being done uh, simultaneously. And there, uh, in animals, it was quite clear that you could stimulate various areas of the brain and produce behavioral deficits. So, for example, the so-called pleasure centers of the brain were discovered in animals where, by stimulating areas of the brain, the septal area, for example, animals would press on a bar and self-stimulate, you know, all day long. So we knew that electrical stimulation of the brain as early as the 1950s could produce behavioral effects. 
So at about the same time, those techniques were moved very rapidly from animal work to human work, and the same stimulation parameters were used in patients that were used in the animals. So these two things happened, you know, simultaneously, and uh, one area learned from the other. And so there was some serendipity, but there was also some animal experimentation that helped thrust uh, the field of deep brain stimulation forward. So what are the principal advantages of, of DBS over those earlier surgical interventions? Well, the principal advantage of DBS in general is that it is adjustable and reversible. In other words, you can choose how much dose of electrical current to apply, and if you run into some untoward effect, a side effect, then you can back off. And uh, if you make a lesion, if you burn a, a structure in the brain, then those cells are gone forever. So if you get into trouble, if you get a side effect from making a lesion, destroying an area of the brain, then you, you can expect to have a permanent non-reversible side effect. Whereas with DBS, you can place the electrodes in, you can turn on the current, and you can optimize the benefit while reducing the side effects. And sometimes there's a trade-off where you may not be able to get the maximum benefit because it comes at a price. And so then you have to make a decision as to how much therapeutic benefit can you get, you know, in order to try to also, you know, minimize the, the adverse effect. John? Okay, Andre. So in 2003, the FDA approved DBS for Parkinson's. And since then, roughly how many procedures have been done in the world? So we estimate that about 125,000 procedures uh, have been done predominantly for Parkinson's disease throughout the world. And the, the rate of accrual is about eight to 10,000 uh, patients per year in the world. Uh, there are approximately 700 centers in the world that conduct uh, DBS surgery. So you must have done over 1,000 just yourself probably, right? Yeah, so in Toronto, we've done about 1,000 ourselves, but, but throughout the world, about 125,000. So who, who's a good candidate for the procedure and who's a, a bad candidate? Well, you know, who's becoming a good candidate is shifting as we learn more and more. And one of the things that's happening is that we're not waiting as long to offer DBS surgery. It used to be when we first started, the average duration of illness was 12 to 14 years before we offered DBS. Now that, that number is ratcheting down, and we're now down to offering it in people that have had Parkinson's disease for four or five years. And so what we're finding is that the best candidates are people who have a good response to levodopa, who are basically essentially normal when they're at their best with levodopa, but are troubled by motor fluctuations. So in Parkinson's disease, people can be off when they are stiff and rigid and unable to move, they can be on when they're functioning quite normally, and then they can also be on with involuntary movements or dyskinesias. And so people spend their day in these three different states, on, off, and on with dyskinesias. So once people develop these fluctuations, this roller coaster of being on and off unpredictably during the day, that is the time to consider surgery. And what we're doing is we're offering surgery earlier, about five years into the illness, when these problems start to appear in patients with 
Parkinson's disease. So as a consequence, we are now ratcheting down the age in which we offer the surgery. So people now in their 50s um, are, are getting surgery instead of in the 60s and 70s. So the landscape is changing and we are becoming more aggressive in offering DBS as we realize its benefits and its potential, particularly in the, in the younger and the people who've had the illness for less time. Interesting. So now the operation, Andre, takes uh, quite a long time when it's done on both sides of the brain at once. It's about a six-hour procedure. Is that correct? Well, there's a tremendous range of time uh, taken because the techniques can vary from center to center. So, for example, some centers are doing the procedure with the patients completely asleep under general anesthesia for the entire procedure. Other centers are doing the procedure with the patients in the MRI machine. That means that you can actually take a picture of the brain as you're introducing the electrodes and confirm that it's in the right place. So the techniques are evolving such that it's now taking less time and the average is probably in the order of three to four hours with a range anywhere from two hours to six hours. What are the main risks facing a patient undergoing DBS at the moment? Well, it's a neurosurgical procedure, and so we tell our patients that with any neurosurgical procedure, including DBS, there is a 1% to 2% risk of a serious complication. And this could be related to, for example, having a cardiac event like a, like a myocardial infarction during surgery or having your blood pressure go very high and having a stroke or getting bleeding when you're doing the operation and getting bleeding into the brain. So these could be very serious things. The chances of you dying or having a major catastrophe are very small, perhaps two or three per thousand operations. So it's extremely safe. But nevertheless, it is a brain operation, and we have to be aware of that. There are also less severe side effects, which can be troublesome. For example, the electrodes can break or the electrodes can move, and then you lose efficacy. You can also get an infection, so if the electrodes get infected, that might require taking antibiotics or even removing them and replacing them at a future date. And also, there could be stimulation-induced side effects, so the electricity per se could cause side effects, and then you have to adjust the current down, and that might mean that you might, it might come at a price of losing some benefit as well. So we generally separate the adverse effects into intraoperative, those that occur with surgery, those that occur the long-term complications related to the having hardware, and the third category are stimulation-induced uh, adverse effects. So of those adverse effects, in addition to making some symptoms better, is there a risk that some Parkinson's symptoms could get worse? Yeah, so you could, for example, uh, produce uh, some contractions or some trouble with speech uh, or some difficulty with balance. Uh, with stimulation, and that's related to the stimulation spreading to areas that you don't necessarily want to stimulate. And so these are off-target effects that you see. So if you get uh, better targeting, or if we have, as in the future, the ability to better shape the shape of the current, to steer the current in one direction or the other, we think that we might be able to improve on the results. Dave, over to you. I wanted to pick up on one thing you said about the possibility of that you're now kind of moving down in age the candidates for this procedure, that people could now perhaps have it in their 50s rather than in their 60s or, or, or 70s and maybe only five years into the disease rather than 10, 15 or, or more. I've 
also heard of some people who really want to get the surgery sooner still, the idea being if this is so effective, if my principal symptom is tremor and DBS is so great at dealing with tremor, why not go to that as sort of a first opportunity, as, as a first way of dealing with the disease rather than a, a later stage attempt? What's your, your view on that, that people kind of jump to this as, as candidates early on in the disease? Well, that, that's a very good point. So it turns out that tremor is one of the most treatment, you know, medication-resistant symptoms of the illness. And so if you have someone whose livelihood uh, depends on, on being able to not, not to have tremor, then it becomes an important thing. So we've operated, for example, on surgeons or veterinarians or, or trial lawyers who had tremor as really the only symptom, and they wanted to have surgery because they weren't getting enough benefit from the drugs. And so in some cases, we've operated quite early in the course of the illness, and patients with tremor are, are a good example. But in general, we wait until the risk-benefit ratio is as favorable as possible. And what we're looking at really is what are the potential benefits of the surgery versus the consequences of maintaining the drugs. And if you're at the stage where you're thinking of quitting your job, if you're not uh, going after that promotion, if you're not um, you know, being as aggressive as you want in your career because you know you have Parkinson's disease, then that's the time to consider maybe you should have the surgery to buy yourself that extra time. We think that surgery rolls back the clock on the illness several years, if you will. So in some cases, we are offering uh, the surgery quite early, especially when someone's livelihood or, or quality of life is at play. And are we getting closer to really understanding how and why DBS can be so effective? We talked a bit earlier about the sort of serendipity factor, and it often seems through the history of DBS, while it works so well, sometimes it seems like it's also a bit of a mystery as to why it actually works. Are we getting a clearer understanding of that? I would say that there's some progress, but we are still far away from having a clear understanding of how it works. We are not increasing dopamine supply in the brain. This does not work like giving drugs that increase dopamine. Instead, it is working on the circuit dysfunction that arises as a consequence of missing dopamine. And so when dopamine is a great lubricant, if you like, for the motor system, and when you're missing dopamine, the downstream circuits are in a state of disarray and dysfunction. And what we're doing is we are tackling this dysfunction in the circuits in the brain that are dependent on dopamine. And so we feel that these neurons and these circuits are misfiring. The neurons and the circuits are firing together in an oscillatory pattern. And so instead of having, for example, the complexity of a full symphony orchestra in the brain, what you have is these monotonous discharges, these monotonous rhythms in the brain. And because of that, you cannot uh, engage in normal motor function. And so the DBS is basically trying to improve the functioning of, of these areas of the brain that are misfiring because of the dopamine deficiency. But how exactly it does that is still an area of hot uh, debate. Do you think that's sort of where the action is, though, in a sense now, that this deeper understanding of circuits, what's going on with the, the synchrony of the, of the circuitry, as opposed to necessarily focusing on 
new drugs or new medication? Is the circuitry part of the Parkinson's mystery where you think the, the deeper answers lie? I think so. And, it, and it's not just the, the motor circuitry, because as we know, uh, with DBS, we're pretty good at treating the motor fluctuations, the tremor and the rigidity and so on. But we know that patients with Parkinson's disease have other issues. For example, they may have psychiatric issues. They may have cognitive decline. They may have speech and balance difficulties. And those things typically, number one, do not respond to medications as well. And number two, do not respond to DBS as well. And so we are now uh, developing a more holistic picture of the illness where it's not just about the movement, but also about these other aspects, the so-called non-motor aspects of Parkinson's disease that we are not very good at treating. And so a lot of emphasis is going into not just understanding the motor circuitry and what goes wrong with it, but what are the other areas of the brain that are also involved in Parkinson's disease and causing the signs and symptoms that we see in our patients, particularly as the illness progresses. So would the hope be that the next generation of DBS procedures might be able to tackle some of those hard-to-treat symptoms that you were just mentioning, be that balance, which sounds like a motor symptom, but I know is something that's not responsive to, to dopamine, or psychiatric issues like depression? Is, is the hope that there could be a, a circuitry approach to dealing with those symptoms as well? Absolutely, but there's not one spot in the brain that's going to treat all of these problems. There's not one sweet spot. What we're looking at is maybe multiple circuits with some overlap, but these are also somewhat segregated. And there may be, for example, a cognitive circuit or a, a speech circuit or a balance circuit. And what we're envisaging is perhaps the possibility that you will not require just one electrode in one circuit, but that you might require more than one electrode to treat the individual circuits in the brain that go awry in Parkinson's disease. John? Well, picking up on that, Andre, DBS has been used not just for Parkinson's disease, but also for childhood dystonia obsessive compulsive disorder and severe depression, hasn't it already? You've, you've already showed that it can work in different brain regions for those conditions, correct? Yes, that's correct. There are now, at last count, uh, DBS has been examined in over 40 conditions that are neurologic and psychiatric. And so there's been a tremendous expansion of possibilities and treating not just motor circuits, but also cognitive circuits, mood circuits, Etc. And so this, with the tremendous success of DBS in Parkinson's disease, the possibility of treating these other circuits and other conditions becomes a reality. And this is an area of very, very high activity, the possibility of using DBS to treat other neurologic and psychiatric conditions. Now, at the moment, the stimulator, when it's turned on, is left on for good, right? It's a chronic treatment, right? It's usually 24-7, that's correct. Yeah, but there's also the possibility, like a, a cardiac pacemaker, which is more on demand, people are now looking into stimulators that can be turned on as needed rather than being left on all the time. Is that true? Right, that's true. And the, the area that is on, on the forefront of this is patients with epilepsy. So as you know, epilepsy can come and go. You can have one seizure one day and not another. And so there are now systems that can forewarn of a seizure coming and the stimulator turns on in that only when, when required. So this same principle will now be used in Parkinson's disease where we can see that there are abnormal patterns of neural activity in the brain, and this can then be used to trigger the DBS system such that 
you will not have to have it on 24 hours a day, but only on a contingency basis when you detect an abnormality in the brain. That's when the stimulator would kick in. So this is called a closed loop system where you have an input, something that you measure, and that triggers then turning on uh, the stimulator. So this is very exciting. Is success really dependent on finding the exact location with total precision? Is it primarily a location or a technique or is it? Well, it, it's, it's sort of like the old adage in real estate. Uh, the three most important things in the brain are location, location, and location. Uh, you have to be in the right place. An error of one millimeter means the difference between success and failure. And so the neurosurgical techniques have to be very precise, the imaging, the electrophysiology, et cetera, because you have to be in the right place to get the best result. Just to pursue that analogy for a moment, so does the future then lie in, in mapping, that if we have as precise a map as possible of the brain and where these different circuits apply to different symptoms, that we can that make that much more progress? I think there's still a tremendous amount to learn as to what are the causes of the problems that we see. You know, why do some patients get tremor? Why do some patients get rigidity? Why do some patients have speech problems? Why do some patients get depressed? Why do some of them have cognitive disturbances? So this is a bit of a mystery. We call all of these disorders Parkinson's disease, but no two patients are the same. You can get tremendous variability in the signs and, and the symptoms of this illness. And this means that the circuits that are affected and the sub-circuits within each patient are quite different. So it's quite a mystery as to why you would get one effect in one patient and something else in another. And so understanding what areas of the brain are malfunctioning and targeting the therapy specifically to those patients to make it more personalized where we really have a very precise idea of what should be targeted in each patient will, I think will become important. And this will be not only for the motor disturbances of Parkinson's disease, but also for the non-motor disturbances. And I know it's always hard to forecast when some of these developments may take place, but just a last thought on that. How close are we to getting to the, the right location for some of those other symptoms? When do you think we'll take the next step in being able to provide treatment uh, relief for some of those hard-to-deal-with symptoms in Parkinson's? Well, as a general rule, it takes about a decade between having an idea and testing it and, and showing whether it works or not. And so these things are ongoing. There are, for example, experiments of stimulating various areas of the brain to treat the balance disturbance in Parkinson's disease. There are developments in treating depression, for example. There are developments in treating cognitive function with DBS. And so these are underway. So we hope that within the next five to 10 years that we will get some answers as to whether we can indeed apply these new targets and these new techniques to help our patients with Parkinson's disease. That was Dr. Andre Lozano at the University of Toronto. And John, one of the interesting things he brought up is this idea that perhaps we no longer need to look at DBS as kind of the treatment of last resort. We've always kind of done it very late in the disease course. And Lozano seems to be suggesting that that doesn't necessarily need to be the case, that perhaps we can be governed by more when someone needs it rather than how long they've necessarily had Parkinson's. Well, it's a wonderful idea because there's something very intriguing about this notion of brain circuits, which it gets at. And there seems to be a, a much tighter connection between 
a brain circuit and a behaviour, you know, the ability to move or think or, or talk, than there is between a neurotransmitter and going into individual neurons. And so it's a brilliant idea, but it's the history so far has been, as you say, serendipitous and a bit hit and miss. And when you see with a deep brain stimulation operation how they uh, adjust the levels and so forth, it seems still a bit like black magic. So I'm, I'm not totally convinced that we're there yet, but the future is terribly exciting. Well, I think that's true. And I think this idea of circuitry, which I admit is something that I have just the kind of very basic understanding of, but that really the, that circuitry may be where the action is more than necessarily replacing the dopamine supply, I think is is fascinating, as is, I think, this idea of, of location. You know, Lozano made the point that just like in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. And as they figure out more ways in which to pinpoint the location where they could make a difference in the circuitry, that that might allow for treatment of some of these very difficult to solve problems, including balance, perhaps speech, perhaps even cognition. Absolutely. I mean, you can see now that deep brain stimulation has been used not only for Parkinson's, but also for obsessive compulsive disorder and even acute depression. So there's two things, really. I mean, one, if you can get the location precise, so you, you benefit the patient and avoid the risk, that's terrific. But there's also the generation of, of stimulators we've had so far have been kind of fairly primitive. They just you turn them on and they stay on for years and years. And what they're now coming up with is advanced stimulators rather like advanced cardiac pacemakers where they can be smart and they'll respond to brain waves going on in the brain so if if there's an excessive synchronization between two brain regions the stimulator will turn on and make it better so i think the potential both with location but also in the degree of sophistication of the stimulators is going to break this field right open yeah i really like that the analogy that he made that right now it's a bit like what happens in parkinson's as you get locked into as you say an excessive synchronization so it's a bit like having as he put it an, an orchestra only playing one note and if you can kind of re-engage the conductor and and return to a more natural varied rhythm um, that things can work better. See, it just is such an interesting thing, and I guess I'm glad in the end to have one thing to be excited about and, and one area of research where they really seem to be to be making progress. So let's hope we learn that much more come our, our Portland uh, gathering in, in September of next year. And with that, we'll wrap up this particular uh, podcast. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Until next time. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.